Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. <laughs> From the Bethel Library at Bethel, at Bethel University, it's homecoming and it's election shock therapy. We're back. <laughs> we're here. <laughs> Welcome, guys. Thank you all for coming out and joining us for this live podcast. Um, we are excited. This is not just Bethel's homecoming, which I will, be, by the way, ask you guys for a score prediction later on. Um, oh, but uh, <laughs> it's also um, Election Shock Therapy's midterm midtacular. That's right. And it's our 49th episode, so next one will be our 50th wow. episode. Wow. So we what, need to do something what, special. What do you for get that. for the 50th episode? I don't know. What is the appropriate gift? I, I, I assume it's platinum. I don't know. Uh, it seems a little it's early. Gold. It's, gold. A, it's a bit much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're still in paper. We're That's still, right. we're still is, at it, um, is it, is it so, is, Isn't 50 usually? the silver anniversary? No, gold. So. Oh, is it gold? Oh, okay. Silver is 25. 25. 25. Platinum is 75. Wait, is this the modern version or is this the uh, <laughs> the classic version? version? Yeah, golden wedding anniversary is 50. <laughs> no. I got a ways to go. I though. will be getting you guys gold, gold then. All right. Some wow, time. Sam. Bling. <laughs> Bling. All right. <laughs> so what are we doing today, Chris? Well, we have a couple things I want to do today. Because we actually had the benefit of having some... Um, having uh, a, so a live audience here, uh, we thought we would take some Q&A. Mm -hmm. um, so if you haven't had a chance to yet, fill out a card and ask us some questions. Try and stump Crumb. Um, <laughs> and uh, I like he's, it. he's got the laptop, so he, right, that, yeah. that's And that'll be helpful because it's sort of an uneventful political season right now. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, yep. it's a little quiet. It's a little dry right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, um, in our last episode, we talked quite a bit about um, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. And um, it now appears as though he is going to be confirmed. That yep. vote's scheduled to take place um, a little bit later. But... Um, he, at least verbally, we've gotten enough announcements that it's, it's likely yeah. he's going to get confirmed. Yeah. What yeah. we want to do with our time today is look at um, the midterm elections coming up here. Well, it will mm -hmm. fold in some of the events that might influence the midterm elections, but right. we want to start local and then move national. So I'm going to ask these guys to reflect a little bit on what the, what the races in Minnesota look like. We'll start with the House, then go to the Senate and uh, see where we get from there. So. You guys ready to take a walk around Minnesota? Yeah. Okay. You want me to start? Yeah, right. go for it. Yeah, so Minnesota is kind of interesting this year, I think, um, in part because um, most of the country looks like the Democratic Party is sort of, you know, in the ascendant right now, which is typical when you have a, a president of the other party, so Trump's from the Republicans, um, and they're looking to pick up a lot of seats. Minnesota's more complicated. Um, we have four seats out of our eight um, that look like prime candidates to be flipped, so, so to go from either from Democratic control to Republican control, or Republican to Democratic. Now, there's a very good chance that you'll get two and two, and it'll end up looking, the numbers exactly will be the same. The same. <laughs> yeah, it just, it'll be right. which districts are represented by Republicans and Democrats. So yeah. um, Minnesota 1, which is currently represented by Tim Walls, who's running for governor, um, and Minnesota 8, who's, which is represented by Rick Nolan, who's retiring, um, both Democrats, um, both look like opportunities for the Republicans to actually make a pickup. And those are 
some of the only seats, maybe the only seats in the country um, that are slated as you know likely pickups for the Republicans of seats the Democrats currently hold. Is that a consequence um, of local issues, or is that some trend that Minnesota mm -hmm. is on? It's more a consequence of districts that have been trending more conservative, mm -hmm. um, and or or have been pushing back against where the, where the National Democratic Party is going. But they liked their current representatives. They liked Rick Nolan. I mean, so for example, the Iron Range is Rick Nolan's district, um, Minnesota eight, and he won it barely last time, very close election, while President Trump was winning that district big. I mean, like he won it by like 16 points, right? So they liked Trump, but they also liked Nolan, um, but the you know polls suggest that there's a good chance at least the Republicans could pick up. It's it's close. Um, there's also two districts um, that are currently held by Republicans. So Jason Lewis in Minnesota two, and then Minnesota three, which is Professor Moore's district. Um, Eric Paulson. Is I'm not representing that district. He's not representing that district. <laughs> He's not the one who's going to lose. Um, but Eric Paulson and um, Jason Lewis are both behind in the polls, and so it looks like good pickup chances yep. for the Democrats there. Um, and the other four are likely to stay with the incumbent. Yep, and those, um, and those are considered more safe seats. Relatively more. I mean, the one yeah. exception to that would be um, Colin Peterson in Minnesota Seven, and that's another classic case of um, Minnesota Seven really likes Peterson. He's a relatively mm -hmm. conservative Democrat. Um, he's been very well connected in that district. So when Peterson decides to retire, and he's in his seventies, um, there's a very good chance Republicans could pick up that district. But you know, as long as he wants to keep running, it seems like they'll keep electing him. Um, he's done. He's he's very well connected there. So. I couldn't find any polling data on that district. They don't poll it much. I mean, yeah. you know, there's a sort of assumption that Colin <laughs> is going to right. take care of business, and it's probably a good assumption based on past past years. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things to always keep in mind with with local polls like this, it's very it's very expensive to do polling, and so oftentimes for house races that are considered sort of slam dunks, there just aren't uh, there is just isn't any polling data just because there's there, there's no need to, uh, to predict them. Yep. So that would include places like uh, the seventh with Colin Peterson versus uh, is it Dave Hughes? Um, yep. Yeah, and then <laughs> uh, in the sixth, it's uh, Ta um, Tom Emmer versus uh, Ian Todd, and um, yeah, that's my district. In the fifth, uh, Ilan Omar versus uh, Jennifer uh, Zielinski. Yep. Um, and then in the fourth, uh, Betty McCollum, um, which is this district, yeah, yeah, is likely to win as well. So, yeah. um, so yes, yeah, so out of the eight, we've got four. We're pretty competitive. Pre pretty Outside competitive. Chance Peterson, but not really. And then three that are, you know, you can go ahead and call them the next representative or the reelected representative. Yeah. So, are these susceptible? How susceptible are Minnesota House races to um, national wave politics? The, the kinds of things we've been talking about with um, when we do when we do polling, one of the things that uh, we uh, that uh, we we sometimes the pollsters often ask voters is what's known as a generic ballot question. So, um, do you prefer a generic Democrat or a generic Republican? And up until recently, and I'm interested to see what the most recent polls are on this. Um, generic Democrats have had a substantial lead over generic Republicans. It's varied somewhere between seven and even 11 points. Mm -hmm. um, an 11 point lead would suggest a national blue wave kind of sweep. Um, seven, much less so, although significant gains. Yeah. Um, if there is something like that, can that swamp some of these races? Could. It, I mean, it could, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, you know, there's part of the issue with the House is the House is always local and there are so many safe seats. 
So the thing to always keep track of in the house is usually at most there's about 75 seats that are genuinely up for grabs and the rest are more or less given one way or the other. Just as we, yeah. this is why Minnesota is in some ways unusual in the fact that we have so many competitive seats. Most states yeah. do not have that many competitive seats. Most of, most of the seats will be safe one way or the other. Uh, so Minnesota is a little bit unusual in that. And so uh, how much, how much, you know, so when you're, when you're looking at a wave, you're mostly thinking about those seats that are competitive. And, you know, even, even looking here in Minnesota, um, you know, local, local issues, local issues tend to, um, dominate even at that point. And so what'll be, what'll be interesting to see is if it's, if it's enough. I mean, if there's enough of, you know, an enthusiasm, um, to actually, to actually make a difference. And I think that's, um, that's where we're going to see. That's, that's, that's really an open question now. Um, one of the things that's interesting in polling is up until the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, the enthusiasm gap was pretty significant. Democrats were much more enthusiastic mm -hmm. about going to the polls um, than Republicans, and that has not quite completely gone away, but it's, it is, uh, Republicans have said that they are much more enthusiastic now in recent polls. And so um, there's a better chance, at least, that Republicans will turn out better than, than, than originally predicted. So, if, right, so. if Minnesota has... Uh, um, in maybe an abnormal number of competitive races, does that mean that we'll see more, or we are seeing more national attention, both in terms of national coverage, but also in terms of national money coming into Minnesota to try to win those seats? Uh, yes. Uh, so, so uh, we've cer we've certainly seen more in terms of national coverage. So, uh, you know, basically, when the when the New York Times has profiled major House seats, they've focused several times on on Minnesota. So, Minnesota's definitely seen more um, in terms of outside money. There's been some, although not quite as much as uh, as 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 might be expected. So, they're just we we haven't seen sort of the massive influx. So, actually, in the uh, district where I grew up, um, back in Ohio. Uh, there was the there was the special election between O'Connor and um, uh, um, Balderson, <laughs> um, and basically uh, in that in that fight there were uh, millions and millions of dollars pouring in from, from from outside groups. We haven't seen any of the districts experience anything like that. That's just sort of a complete massive tidal wave of of, of outside money. Um, but nonetheless, because of the uh, yeah, because because it has higher profiles, there are, there is some national influence. Yeah. So then, I know when we look at special elections over the last two years, I mean, when those are more isolated because they're sort of the only thing going on. Right. I know in some cases when there has been a lot of national attention or especially national money coming in, that that impacts the way people mobilize in lots of different directions. So yep. does does national attention on Minnesota races? Do you think that impacts? sort of what we'll see as in terms of the results? I mean, Ken, like, certainly like one way we've seen that is the, you know, the president was just here again, right? Um, and to campaign for, um, you know, for members of, of you know, who are running for Congress. Um, and that, I think that's partly a reflection of the fact that, I mean, he did do well in, like, in the Iron Range District, right? And so his, his support is seen as valuable for the Republican candidate there. Um, and, you know, you kind of, you know, you want him to come out. And that, and that can influence. I mean, that can actually get people enthusiastic. We were just talking about the enthusiasm gap that is narrowed, right? And that's something you can do in an individual district. To narrow it is you get people fired up by bringing mm -hmm. in, you know, yeah. sort of big heavy hitters, right? And, you know, if, if they're appealing to those people, right, then that might actually make them more likely to turn out. So I think that kind of attention, you know, can matter. Yeah. I have a, cu I have a couple uh, enthusiasm questions about enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> First, Can you ask them enthusiastically? I will ask them enthusiastically. <laughs> no, <right>. he um, <laughs> I have a few dry questions about enthusiasm. Um, 
how durable is enthusiasm? So uh, what we've seen, what, we, what you just mentioned, is that the Democratic enthusiasm was leading Republican enthusiasm up until yeah. the Kavanaugh nomination, and now Republican enthusiasm has largely caught up. I, my sense is that it's not that Democratic enthusiasm has declined, right. but rather right. just yeah. Republican enthusiasm has risen to meet it. Yep. Yes. Um, will we ex should we expect that to persist through the election, or could that lag in the in the next couple weeks? Yeah, um, this this is this is sort of the question. Um, most folks who are looking at this, I think, predicts uh, because Republicans have sort of won the Kavanaugh um, appointment battle at this point, um, that, that, that the Republican enthusiasm may actually decline slightly. Mm -hmm. There's less of a sort of a battle to fight at this point. It's, it's sort of the battle is won. Mm -hmm. And so usually when you're thinking about um, enthusiasm, it's usually the losers who can to persist in being, um, you know, fired up. And so, so basically we would probably expect uh, Democrats to to, in that sense, electorally, perhaps benefit a little bit more um, than than Republicans. Um, with that, with that said, uh, enthusiasm is sort of it's one of these things. It's just it's we, we ask about it on polls. It's very very difficult to to um, to, to totally predict what that's going to lead to in the in the out, in the final outcomes. Um, especially because especially in a midterm election, um, it you, you often will find people who are. Uh, you know, you may you may find somebody who's who's relatively enthusiastic, but then ultimately decides they don't want to take the time to show up at the polls because they feel like their local elections don't matter that much. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it it it, it, ma it matters, but it, it it's hard to predict exactly how much that will matter. Um, and oftentimes, particularly in midterm elections, it, it once again it does come down to somewhat to local factors. Um, how much? And in Minnesota, I think especially we should see. I think we should expect to see actually pretty decent turnout because Minnesota does have. Um, we've got a lot of things on the ballot. I mean, we have both our senators. Mm -hmm. We've got the governor's race. We've got, uh, you know. So there's there's a it's lot. It's a great of, time to be. A it's a great time to be a Minnesotan, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. And we usually get good turnout. I mean, we are we yeah. tend to be on the higher end of turnout partly because we do allow us because to be we're all above average, Andy. We're all above <laughs> average. Right. That's part of it. <laughs> but also we allow same-day registration. So you don't actually have to yep. plan ahead to get registered. You can actually just show up, register, yep. and vote all in one go. And that helps us. I just want to point out how proud I am as the only native Minnesotan up you here that all native. of you are referring to Minnesota as we. So that makes me know. <laughs> right. We've adopted it. That's right. We're, we're we hope it's adopted us. There's something <laughs> in the hot bench that pulls right. you in. This pulls you in. <laughs> um, I have another question about that's related to enthusiasm. And is it... <laughs> Um, and, and I'll stop. I'll stop with enthusiasm. <laughs> right, stop like, being so enthusiastic, but, man. But here's the: is enthusiasm just a proxy for turnout? Uh, it's, you it's, can't vote emphatically, right? Right. <laughs> well, you right. can. You can. But it make essentially, sense. essentially, what enthusiasm yeah. is trying to capture is essentially is, is so. Basically, this is sort of the problem. What 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 the problem that political scientists and pollsters face when they're looking at data is: you call people up and you say, "Who do you favor?" Um, or who would you vote for if today was the election is usually how that question is raised. If the election were today, would you vote for, and if it's the generic ballot, they say, would you vote for a generic Republican, generic Democrat, and if it's your specific one, you might say, like, you know, would you today, if the election were today, would you vote for Tina Smith or Karen Housley, right? And so, um, and so then you answer, right? You, you actually give that answer. But what that doesn't tell you is, is this person likely to show up? And we know that, you know, in Minnesota, we've got decent turnout, um, but in a lot of states, you know, especially during a midterm election, you're actually less, you know, you're more likely than not not going to show up. Mm -hmm. And if you're most likely to not show up, then yes, there may be a majority who actually favor one candidate or the other, but that actually doesn't predict the election because you don't know who's gonna actually show up at the polls. Right. Um, and asking people, 
if they if they plan to vote is basically a garbage <laughs> because essentially if you ask people if they plan to vote everyone sort of feels like they a civic duty yes teeth. they lie through their teeth right i mean everybody says they're going to they, they, they yes they plan Boy. to vote and we know that you know at least half of the people who tell us they plan to vote will not in fact go and vote so that's not a good predictor so enthusiasm is is essentially an indicator of trying to see who is actually going to get out and vote how likely are democrats versus republicans to actually get out um, and, and, and cast a ballot. And just sort of rewinding back to 2016, part of the reason that this has become something that people are following is because generally Republicans were, were registering as much more enthusiastic about President Trump than, uh, than, than, than Democrats were about Hillary Clinton. And so uh, that's seen as sort of a way to think about who's going to actually show up at the polls. Um, yeah. And this is so, good. I mean, like the challenges you face in political science and trying to you know, measure things, I mean, and especially trying to predict things, right? I mean, there's different ways. One of these ways to try to predict who's going to actually get out is to ask this enthusiasm question. Another is to look at, like, did you vote in the last election, which is usually a pretty good predictor. If somebody's got a habit of voting, um, they're likely to go out again. But, I mean, we should emphasize, like, these things are all, you know, they're, they're attempted proxies at predicting mm -hmm. something that's going to happen or not going to happen. And, of course, there's lots of things that can intervene. Um, and, you know, those measures don't, I mean, they're, they're not perfect measures, right? right. They're all attempts yep. to be able to predict. And I think one of the things that, you know, I mean, we can think about this in 2016 too, right? Like one of the reasons we didn't call this right is that, you know, there was there were there was a, a significant gap in terms of who was going to turn out and who was not going to turn out in some of the Rust Belt states, right? Um, yep. Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, oh, not not Ohio so much, but Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, um, right? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons people thought Hillary Clinton was going to win those states when, in fact, Donald Trump ends up winning them. So if, if we so look at at um, voter turnout in past midterms for the state of Minnesota, like what? What would indi what what um, turnout number in 2018 would lead you to say, wow, that was really good voter turnout? Where do you sort of put that line to say that's that's what we would consider good voter turnout? You know, I don't actually have those numbers in my head for the what our past ones have been. Mm -hmm. um, typically, if you get above 50 percent for a midterm, that's great. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah. Midterms, the turnout tends to be more in the 40 percent range nationally. Mm -hmm. I would guess in Minnesota we do a little bit better just because we generally do do better. But how would that compare would to a presidential election? What Presidential's higher. I mean, presidential like, usually nationally is going to be over 50. Okay. Um, in a good one, it might be you know upwards of I think like Obama in 08 was around 60. I think. Yeah. Right? yeah right but 60. percent yep. turnout of, of eligible voters. Um, that's not registered necessarily, but people who could vote, right? who have right. the ability to go vote yep. and actually then chose to do so. Um, so that's really good. If you can get, I mean, if you get above 60 in the national election in this country, that's fantastic. Yeah. Going back to ancient history, um, <laughs> in, 2014, in 2014, oh. um, there was a uh, argument offered uh, when um, Democrats did poorly in the midterm elections in 2014 that Republicans were better at turning out in midterm elections. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Is there any water to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they, they do know. generally turn out better at midterms. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, but part of, part of it is, again, comes back to this enthusiasm question, because 2006, for example, that didn't happen, right? I mean, Democrats did turn out, and they did vote much better, um, and you got a pretty significant gain. So but it's yeah. just party out of the presidency? Well, here, so, there, so, totally. yeah, so, there, so, so there are a couple of things. There are a couple of reasons why Republicans tend to, do, t tend to turn out better, and that is partially thinking about who votes Republican versus who votes Democrat. And so if you look at who votes Republican, uh, you're usually looking at a slightly, um, uh, slight, slightly wealthier demographic. So these are people who have a little bit more money. Um, and you're also looking at people who tend to be a little bit older, right? So the, so the Republican Party tends to uh, attract more older voters, and it tends to attract more wealthy voters. And in fact, 
two of the things then that actually lead people to vote more frequently are, in fact, age and wealth. And so, in general, you know, basically the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to go out and vote. And this is for, you know, there are a number of obvious reasons for this. Part of it is simply if you have more money, you have more free time on your hands. You know, you don't have to constantly be working or worrying about childcare or things like that. So you can go and vote. Um, and in addition to that, uh, if you're older, um, you know, you basically, you, you, also, you also have a little bit more time on your hands. And also older people tend to have figured out that politics matters. Mm. And so younger folks uh, oftentimes feel like politics doesn't matter, it doesn't impact their life, uh, and so therefore, or, or they just feel like they've got bigger, bigger fish to fry, you know, they've got, you know, maybe a family, maybe college, maybe a uh, new job, whatever, and so they don't actually get out and vote. And so because Democrats tend to uh, attract uh, these demographics that uh, basically, basically don't vote as frequently, especially when you're talking about a year, uh, you know, the midterm elections when there isn't a presidential election online, um, you know, these, these folks who already don't tend to vote quite as well, um, you know, don't, don't, don't tend to turn out quite as well. So Republicans do have sort of this slightly built-in advantage um, when it comes to uh, mid, when, it, when, it, when it comes to midterm elections. Low turnout votes. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things to think about, and I think this is sort of, um, you know, part, part, a couple of things that we sort of touched on, I just want to kind of mention, when we think about um, election, when, and, uh, when, when we think about midterm elections, there's sort of a couple of big trends um, in, that political scientists have noted, and I just want to kind of mention those. Um, the first one is what's referred to as sort of as the midterm law, and the midterm law essentially states that the party that controls the presidency will lose seats in the midterms. And this has only been defied a couple of times, right? So uh, basically, Bush in 2002 defied this law. Um, and you can also uh, see this uh, in, in, in 1998 with Clinton. Um, and then you have to go all the way back to uh, 1934 with FDR um, to see another defiance of the midterm law, right? So basically, it's pretty solid. As political science laws go, that one's pretty good. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, so basically, what we should expect from that then is that the Republicans will lose seats. That seems almost certain. The mm -hmm. real question is, you know, how, how many seats and, uh, you know, how significant will the Democrats um, be in sort, of, in sort of taking that over? And, you know, there are several theories behind this, right? Um, one of them is the one that we've already been discussing and I think has been sort of the big one that people have been talking about. This is sort of like surge and decline, right? Do you see increases in party enthusiasm during a presidential year and then this decline in enthusiasm uh, afterwards? Um, but another theory, and I think this is maybe to some degree relevant, in fact, um, Particularly, particularly for Minnesota, is the theory of, of sort of a referendum, right? That the midterms are essentially mm -hmm. a referendum on the current presidential administration. And um, last night, as I was driving home, uh, I was actually listening to a debate between Paulson and Phillips, and essentially that was what that debate was, right? That was essentially Phillips um, trying to tie uh, Paulson directly to President Trump and saying, uh, he didn't come out and directly say this, I don't think, at least not that I heard, but essentially what he was saying was, a vote for me is essentially a way to uh, cast a vote of no confidence in the president, right? So, um, so essentially trying to draw on this sort of referendum uh, type, type idea. Super PAC ads are going even further in that regard. Uh, yeah. Because I'm, I'm in the district, I, I had a targeted ad show up in my social media of <laughs> Eric Paulson, a cartoon of Eric Paulson uh, canoeing in a Minnesota lake with a cartoon of Donald Trump. They ah, were, there you go. I, yep. Uh, they, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Donald Trump likes to canoe. It's definitely, where, definitely where up I there. can see him. Yep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we should say about the midterm law, too, is this mostly, or primarily, I should say, applies to the House of Representatives. Um, because the whole House, of course, yeah. is up every two years. The Senate is a lot more idiosyncratic because it matters which seats are up. So, for example, yeah. this year, 
which we would normally expect to be a pretty good year for the Democrats. They're leading the generic ballot. There's a Republican in the White House, right? Um, the Senate's more complicated, right? There's a very good chance the Democrats could actually lose seats in the Senate or at least not pick up seats um, because of which seats are up, right? This is a year in which there's a lot of Democrats up for re-election. There are very few Republicans up for re-election. A number of the Democrats up for re-election were elected in 2012, a good year for the Democrats in states that are actually pretty Republican. Um, and some of those elections were really weird. I mean, like one was in Indiana where I lived at the time and the Republicans nominated a really weak candidate. Similarly, Missouri, they had a really terrible Republican candidate um, who said some really dumb things that just kind of torpedoed his chances, right? So um, all that to say, like, there's a lot of seats that are pretty, are gonna be pretty hard, I think, for the Democrats to hold, or at least very challenging. Um, and so we wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of pickup to be reflected in the Senate. Um, it could, they might pick up a seat or two, but it doesn't seem terribly likely. Um, before we get to the Senate, which I do want to turn to next, one more question about the House. Mm -hmm. um, one term we hear a lot more in, uh, in political discourse over the last couple of years is gerrymandering. Yep. And gerrymandering um, is a, I should, well I should let our, our intra-American government <laughs> person explain yeah. uh, gerrymandering. <laughs> but it has to do with um, extremely contrived congressional districts. Right. And so my question for you after you explain what gerrymandering is, is, is Minnesota, does Minnesota suffer from gerrymandering? So what gerrymandering is, is essentially, um, you know, what the, so the, the big question we have, because we have um, these different congressional districts and any state that has uh, more than a couple uh, uh, house districts is where do you draw the lines, right? So essentially you have to have uh, roughly 750,000 voters per district. Um, and essentially the, the, the question is which voters go in which district. And what, what gerrymandering is, is it's essentially an attempt to uh, give one party or the other a distinct advantage that they will gain more seats uh, than they otherwise would from sort of a direct popular vote. Um, so essentially the way you do this is you do uh, what's referred to as cracking and packing. So uh, that pa sounds painful. Yes, well, so <laughs> packing uh, is essentially where you take the, uh, your opponents, the, the party that you want to lose seats, and you put as many of their voters in a single district as you possibly can so that they will win that district overwhelmingly. Um, so, uh, you know, so basically you try to pack in as many of their people into that one. But then what you do for the other districts is you do what's referred to as cracking, where you try to take what would otherwise be uh, districts that are friendly to that party, right? Areas of the areas of the state that would be friendly to that party, and you try to break them up so that they will be um, there will still be relatively significant numbers, but not quite enough to ever really be a significant majority. So you want it to be roughly split somewhere like you know 60-40, right? Mm -hmm. So that so that you're solid, you've got a solid majority, um, but then you've kind of split up their other voters so that they never actually win any of those districts, so your opponents don't win them. Um, when we look at Minnesota, uh, Minnesota is. Uh, is not is not is not um, super gerrymandered. Um, so basically, Minnesota has uh, uh, the last couple of times these these have been drawn. There's been a relative amount of bipartisanship, um, just in the um, way that basically in the way state politics fell out that these that these had to be drawn. And so when you look at the districts, um, they are they do to some degree pretty closely reflect um, the the state's sentiment in terms of where in terms of majorities. And so Minnesota isn't particularly gerrymandered. Now, if we were to sort of sort of look back and, and rewind to my home state of Ohio, right? Ohio is, is a swing state um, that basically is almost 50-50. Um, 
and essentially for for the last uh, you know number of years here has essentially had 12 Republicans and four Democrats, right? So. Um, as, as, as representatives to the House. So it's a nice classic example of, uh, of gerrymandering. Um, and even my home district, right, so the district I just referred to that had this special election, should be a safe Republican district because essentially it's mostly um, suburban uh, just outside of Columbus, and so it's these nice suburbs. But then it also cuts out this little slice of Columbus, right? So it cuts out this little tiny slice of the, of the inner city so that you essentially have uh, a little example there of cracking, right? Where basically the Republicans are trying to split up those Part inner cities. Parts, parts of Columbus, right? Those inner city votes so that, they will, so that they will never actually be able to overcome the suburban votes that are more safely safe for the Republicans. So, um, yeah. I mean, the very fact that we have four four of our eight districts that could flip from one right. party to another exactly. suggests we're not terribly gerrymandered. Yep. And I think I would say the three that are really, really safe districts, I mean, um, Tom Emmer's district, Minnesota 6, which is very Republican where I live, and then um, the two districts down in the cities, right, um, the Minnesota um, 5 and 4, yeah. um, both of which are solidly Democratic. I mean, they're not terribly gerrymandered, really. They're just, right. that's, that's how those, I mean, like, the suburbs are much more conservative. The cities are much more liberal. Yeah. Um, and so that's just sort of the way it is. And I wouldn't say those yeah. are bad districts. They're just, you know, they're, they're yeah. areas that and tend one, to be pretty hom hom homogeneous. Yeah. One, way to, one way to test this is just looking at the shape of the districts. And the yeah. shapes of those districts are fairly um, contiguous, uniform yeah. shapes. Yeah. They don't sense. have these odd um, trails or tails uh, spinning, spilling <laughs> off of them. There are some fun-looking districts in this country, for sure. Let's, let's talk about the Senate. Yes. Um, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, Minnesota's in the unusual position of having both of our senators up for election this year. Yeah. Um, any su any surprises we should be looking for there? In Minnesota? Yes. Probably not. Uh, I think they're, I mean, <laughs> they look, um, nope. I, mean, I mean, Amy Klobuchar, okay. nothing to see here. Um, Let's move on. Well, I mean, it's, so I will say it's interesting um, in this sense, right? We have a lot of statewide seats up. and. At the top of the ticket for the Democrats, very clearly, is Amy Klobuchar, who's enormously popular in the state. Yep. She's been elected twice to the Senate, um, and you know you can definitely bet on her getting elected a third time, right? I mean, the polls, you know, the worst poll for her is she's been up 15 points, right? And I, I can't imagine she'll win by only 15, right? Most polls, she's up more like 25 to 30, right? So she's going to win. She's going to win easily. It's hard to imagine what epically stupid things she would have to do um, Run to, for to, president? to lose. <laughs> no, that wouldn't do it. We just, we'd love her all the more. Um, and frankly, Amy Klobuchar, whatever else she does is never does anything epically stupid, right? So you can bet on that one, right? Um, where it gets more interesting as we get down a little further, um, at the kind of more risky end for the Democrats in the statewide yeah. races, I would put Keith Ellison, who is leaving Congress to run for attorney general. Keith Ellison has had a lot of controversy. He's had some accusations of some, you know, pretty disturbing misconduct, if it was true, and the accusations are pretty, you know, there's a lot of questions about these. Um, he's also, I mean, obviously an African-American Muslim who represents the cities, um, a very, very, very Democratic district from Minneapolis, um, who's now trying to run statewide. And so it's not clear how he's going to play with kind of Democratic voters in, you know, the outstate, right, who are not in the cities. Um, and, and indeed, the polls have him pretty close. I mean, it's like the one poll I could find was, um, you know, he was up by about five points, which is within the margin of error. He was only at 41%, well below kind of the 50 you'd like to be at as a candidate. So that race could get interesting. In between those two, I mean, Klobuchar winning easily, Ellison having to sweat it for sure. Um, you have, I think, Tim Walls running for governor and then Tina Smith running for Senate. And they mm -hmm. both seem like they have solid but not safe leads, right? I mean, When like I looked, you, they both had seven point leads. Yeah, they were both yeah. about, like every poll I've seen is about five to nine points. Um, so they're, 
you know, they're, they're definitely leading, but not by a ton. So they could do something epically stupid, and that would make a difference. <laughs> um, as long as they don't, they're probably fine. And Minnesota is a state that leans Democratic, um, and we're in a year that definitely le is leaning Democratic. Um, so if, as long as they, you know, have a good month from now to the election, they're probably safe, is my guess. But, but they definitely, I mean, they can't cruise like Klobuchar, I think. Um, we have to we, in light of the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, um, a couple of the key senators who've been heavily in the news are also running for re-election. Um, do any of them uh, improve or worsen their chances of re-election by the way they voted on Kavanaugh, or will vote on Kavanaugh since we kind of have a sense of where everyone's right. going? Uh, I think I think Joe Manchin probably has helped his reelection chances for sure. Yeah. Um, he he essentially has you know he's he's a Democrat running in a very red state in West Virginia, uh, and essentially, even though you know in fact uh, once again this morning as I was listening to the news, <laughs> um, they they were interviewing uh, some some uh, Democrats from West Virginia who are of course very upset that he is planning to vote in favor of and he has already in, voted in favor of advancing Kavanaugh's uh, appointment. And, uh, but essentially what they said at the end of the day was they were like, yes, but we like Joe Manchin because he's better than anything else. And so basically, uh, you know, they're not going anywhere. And so, you know, so basically what, what Manchin is clearly calculating is he's saying, you know, the Democrats are going to vote for me. The Democrats in West Virginia are going to vote for me one way or the other. And I need to pick up some, I need to pick up some, some, uh, you know, otherwise friendly Republican voters, right? So I need, I need some, I need some Trump voters to come my way. And if I can basically say I was willing to play ball with the president for, you know, what, what Republican voters oftentimes say they care about most, which is the Supreme Court appointments, then that seems like a pretty good um, way to uh, so, uh, secure those votes. Um, he will probably still be close, but uh, but he he's been he's been just right there, and this will probably push him over to to to, to win re-election. By my accounting, Manchin will be the only Democrat who votes for Kavanaugh. Yes, that, uh, um, at least that's like the way that's it looks right. now. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, any chance he switches parties? Uh, probably not. Uh, I think I think he's he's pretty he seems he seems pretty solidly Democrat in in a number of ways. So he's very favorable, for example, for the Affordable Care Act, um, and he's very favorable in terms of uh, things like uh, equal pay for women and things like that. So there are a number of Democratic priorities where he's very clearly um, on you know to the left of where the Republicans would want. Okay. And uh, I can't I can't see him. Uh, yeah, I can't see him making that making that switch given those commitments. I mean, only so. yeah, only if he got castigated too much by his party. Yeah, exactly. In which case, then maybe he becomes like an independent who you know yeah. caucuses with the Republicans or yeah. something. If he got too unfriendly. And, and and really, Chuck Schumer has has actually been pretty. Uh, Despite despite the fact that of course he has he has serious rhetoric as far as you know his, his opposition to Kavanaugh he's actually made it pretty clear that he wants the Senate he wants the senators in the Democratic caucus um, to be to do what they need to do in terms of their reelection and yeah. so uh, you know he's he's clearly sort of playing the long game and saying you know we you know it's more important to try to hold the Senate than it is to um, you know win win this one fight here. Yeah. We um, one of the benefits of teaching at Bethel University is we get to know our students really well. Uh -huh. And so I know that we have an Alaska voter in the audience. <laughs> we do. Um, any chance this uh, hurts Murkowski? No. I don't think so. <laughs> okay, all right, um, moving on. Um, I, think, um, I mean, I think she's particularly white. So first of all, I think Murkowski is very well established yep. in, in Alaska. Um, and I think she's articulated why it concerns her. And one of the issues um, she raised is that she's concerned about the way Kavanaugh is going to vote on native rights, which is a big issue in, in Alaska. Um, so. 
Murkowski survived um, tougher things than this, um, like getting primaried and getting knocked out and having to run as a write-in independent, um, which makes her one of two senators to ever pull that one off, my, the other being my former senator, Strom Thurmond um, of South Carolina, right? Um, and, you know, I, I really just don't think this hurts her brand that much. I think it just reinforces I'm an independent-minded Alaskan. I'm going to do what's right for Alaska. Uh, I think she's fine. And besides what, she's not up for re-election this year. She's, oh, there we go. She's got until um, 2022. This is not going to be at the top of voters' list in 2022. Yeah. The, 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 other, the other votes where this probably isn't going to necessarily make or break them, but it may sort of, it's sort of a harbinger in some ways, is Heidi Heitkamp in yeah, I was um, about North that Dakota, one. right? Yeah. So um, she's already losing, uh, yeah. which is probably why um, she went ahead and voted with her caucus. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, she, she's down, last I looked, is what, like four, yeah, more than that. Yeah. I mean, it's like the recent polls have been, yeah. has had her down close to 10. Yeah. The average is still around four, but that's right. reflecting some earlier, more favorable polls. For right, her, so. yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and then, of course, there's also Joe Donnelly in Indiana. Um, that's the interesting one, Yes, actually. yeah. He probably could have helped his reelection chances to some yep. degree by, by voting. Um, so it's a little bit surprising, although mm -hmm. I think it does reflect that um, I, it looks like he's going to squeak it out. So... Mm -hmm. um, it's it's probably going to be close, but um, you know, but but Indiana's kind of a weird state too. You know, we think of Indiana. Hey, well, <laughs> I would like to point out that came from an Ohioan. It came from an Ohioan. Although send I send your to, emails I to electionshocktherapy@gmail.com. I, I, I went to school in Indiana, though, right? Along with uh, we both went to grad school. He is a, right? so, a Hoosier PhD. Um, so, um, but but Indiana's a little bit odd in that it is a deep red state. I mean, the yeah. state itself is extremely conservative, and yet they consistently seem to want to elect at least one or two statewide. Democrats yeah. um, and that just uh, for, for, for just odd reasons the Democrats <laughs> seem to be very good I think well it's, it's it is odd I mean you look at the state and it's like it seems like a Democrat should never ever win but, well, but when they you look do. at Richard Murdoch it's not that odd <laughs> well true um, so maybe part of it's just you know, stupidity candidate. on the part of Republican leadership but I think it's also um, intelligence on the part of Democratic leadership I think they yeah. usually do a very good job of recruiting a very strong mm -hmm. um, candidates in, in, in Indiana and I think that yeah. that helps and Donnelly is an example that. Yeah. So. He's a, a fellow Notre Dame alum, I should add at this moment. <laughs> well, I have a few. Um, I'd like to wrap at the, towards the end of our time here with uh, some questions about national climate and maybe what we can do to contribute positively as, um, uh, as thoughtful believers and as, uh, as, as Christ followers to that national climate. But before we get to that, should we take some questions? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we have kind of a couple sets of questions there. There's uh, more philosophical questions, and then there's a lot of prediction questions. I think people oh, want to know your thoughts on what's going to happen. Right. So, because if you guys were the political scientists, you guys hats. need to do your your science right, and tell us yeah. what's going to happen. <laughs> I like how you wave your hands in science like it's like Harry Potter. It's like right. a mysterious right. thing that's um, out there. So, uh, so th we'll start with Stop. the philosophical, uh, and this maybe okay. actually leans to what you were talking about a little bit, which is. Um, how can the government correct this era of extreme partisanship? And I guess I would add to that, mm. is it the government that needs to correct it? Or what, mm. what is it that, how do we as a society maybe think about this as well? Well, I can start this if you want. I mean, like, it actually strikes me, this ties in very interestingly to um, the recent talk we had here with David Brooks. Um, and so and if you want to watch this, um, it's available online for the next few months. So we can get that link to you. To members um, of the Bethel community. Okay, to members of the Bethel community. <laughs> I'm sure you can all connect with a member of the Bethel community and watch it, um, knowing who you are, right? So Nudge, um, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, wink, yeah. wink, right. So Brooks, um, when he was here, was talking about this issue, actually. He kind of got this question. Um, in fact, that might have been your, was that your question? I can't remember. But uh, anyway, or maybe it was during his actual speech. But he was talking about this, this question. And he said, you know, this kind of change usually happens 
kind of um, kind of bottom up, and politics is the last to be impacted. Mm -hmm. Now he was actually much more optimistic than I am at the moment um, mm -hmm. in terms of he thinks there's some really positive changes happening in society. He thinks we are coming together, um, and and that eventually this will impact our politics. I, I'm a little more skeptical of that, but I think that's that he's right about sort of how this has to happen, right? I think that we have to demand different, and we have to change our own way of, of having discourse, right? And so, um, so I actually think, yeah, it's probably not primarily a government issue. Um, are there things leaders in government could do to frame this differently, to talk about each other more respectfully, to try to engage across party lines better? Um, I think, yes, they, they absolutely could. And so I would like to see individual leaders doing that. But I don't know if it's a matter of changing government rules so much. Mm -hmm. um, right. What we need is to have a change in the spirit. And I think that comes partly from the voters and partly from the people who are elected to government and how they choose to conduct themselves. Yeah, and, oh. and sorry, go ahead. yeah. Um, so uh, you know, part of part of this is you know, politicians generally respond to what they think uh, will, will will gain them reelection, right? And so essentially, uh, you know, being somebody who's uh, you know thoughtful and careful generally is not is not playing well, right? In today's in today's. Uh, politics and so you know this and I think part of this goes back to sort of this uh, a couple decades ago a, a political scientist named Robert Putnam published a very um, well-known and well-debated right so you know this is not all without controversy but uh, he published a book called Bowling Alone and essentially what Bowling Alone says is that American politics is becoming increasingly individualized and fragmented right that basically people aren't doing things together and so of course the classic example is you know and the reason for the title of the book is there's a decline in bowling leagues and you see much more people not belonging but instead just going and bowling alone right so um, and so they're doing this lots of other ways too they're not joining PTA right they're not exactly. Joining church organizations. exactly they're not joining yeah. groups where they would encounter people of other partisanships right, right exactly and to some degree we actually see that actually uh, getting worse right so recent political scientists have actually found that people are sorting themselves even geographically right so it seems to be that people want to move into neighborhoods um, where people are actually of the same partisanship as them um, and so increasingly we actually see people fragmenting across uh, even even more more sharply, and so I think that leads to, uh, well, this obviously leads to this increased, increasingly polarized environment where you're less likely to encounter somebody. So I think in terms of like, what does it mean to push back against that is you actually have to do what's uncomfortable and be in a place where you're going to encounter people who think differently from you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I think that's why to some degree, you know, a college experience is very useful. It, you know, oftentimes you are forced to encounter people who think differently than you. Um, but even, you know, in, in um, in other ways as well, I think uh, you know, this is this is part of why uh, you know church church going can actually be uh, a, a useful thing, particularly if you go to a church that has at least some level of of, of diversity, um, where basically you can encounter people who who think a little at least a little bit differently in terms of in terms of different uh, political issues. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll just I mean I, on a personal kind of testimonial note here, I think um, that struck me the church I go to, which I'm very thankful for. Um, you know, I go to church with people who voted for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders <laughs> and Evan McMullen and Marco Rubio. I mean, all these people, right? Um, and I, I know, I mean, all those are, those are not hypotheticals. I've talked to them, right? Um, and I think, you know, sharing, saying, you know, what we share an identity in Christ and we share, you know, we, we come together and we worship him and we can all, um, you know, partake at the same communion table and we can fellowship together and we can disagree on these political issues. And I can know that, you know what, we all are striving toward the same goal, even though we disagree on some of the politics of this country, and we can do that in ways that are kind and respectful. That's huge, and and being able to do that with other people, it strikes me in our, our discourse today, we are increasingly struggling to do that. Um, and so I think one of the things we have to think about as individual followers of Christ is, 
am I doing that, right? Am I engaging people respectfully and sort of giving them credit for, I think you have good intentions, even if I think your policy you know, objectives are misguided, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really, really important. I'll, I'll add just one thing. I agree with what both of these gentlemen said. Um, there's, a new, there's a relatively new book out called Prius or Pickup Truck. Um, and <laughs> argues that um, basically in favor of what Mitch is talking about, the big sort, the way that uh, Americans are essentially sorting themselves into increasingly yeah. partisan camps. And one of the questions, a polling question from that book that's been asked regularly since the 1980s is, uh, do you hate people from X party? Or do you hate X party? <laughs> and um, happily, up until about 2000, less than 20% of people hated either Republicans or Democrats. So there's a pool of people in the country that 20% of people hated Republicans, 20% of people hated Democrats. But in 2000, that number starts to climb. And it climbs first for hatred towards the Republican Party. So I'm guessing this stems from two things. I'm guessing it stems from the Bush-Gore election, and I'm guessing it also stems from the invasion of Iraq. But the, the, uh, the hate rate, if I can call it that, uh, for the Republican Party climbs. And then about, about two years later, the hate rate for the Democratic Party also begins to climb and really takes off in 2008 after the election of Barack Obama. And so the, both of those numbers now are near 50%. Now that doesn't mean that every single person in the country hates the other somebody from the party. There are people, in the, uh, assuredly, in the country that hate both of the parties. Um, but uh, what it does mean, what it does suggest, is there is this no longer this thick middle ground of people who have tolerance for both parties, um, and we've lost that that, that civic space in, within which to play politics. I, I guess I would just say there are two things, I, I, I know they had another question, but there are two things that we could, the government could do structurally. Um, and that one of those things, I think, is um, nonpartisan redistricting that would get rid of gerrymandering. Um, putting people in districts that are less safe would force candidates to appeal to both Republicans and to Democrats. And that is a structural change that would have a positive effect on reducing yeah. partisan rancor in the but United But that's States. also a very difficult change to Incredibly figure out. Incredibly difficult. F and against, did a really and against good... against the interests yeah. of both parties. 538 right. did a really good podcast series about gerrymandering where... I kept waiting for them to say how to fix it, and I, I walked out <laughs> feeling like I have no idea how you fix yeah. how you fix this. You better. almost need a, a magic wand. Because especially yeah. because it's, we are a federal system, right? So every state gets to yep. do this individually. So I mean, Minnesota can behave themselves very well, and we've suggested that we actually do pretty well. So no, pat ourselves on the back, right? Um, but that has no influence on those folks in Ohio. Right. right. Um, they yeah. just complete, continue to behave in the way they want to behave. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I don't, I don't take any responsibility for the Ohio. <laughs> Are you guys ready for, to make <laughs> some predictions? Because oh, yeah. pretty uh, much that's what we have left. Sure. Yeah. sure. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll start local. Uh, tell us about what you think is going to happen in the Minnesota House as a whole in terms of which party oh, we will didn't, We didn't even get to state politics very much. Yeah, we didn't really get to the, the state. Um, yeah. I haven't actually seen good numbers in this, and that's a good question. Right now, the Republicans yeah. have a very narrow majority. Yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if they held it, but... Right. It, there's, there's, so once again, I mean, at state at the state level, there's very little polling that will yeah. help that yeah. much. Um, but uh, sort of the, the sense is, and I think this is where the national races can play a role, um, I think we should probably expect to see the Democrats perhaps Make pick some up games. some seats, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe enough even to tip it over um, yeah. into Democratic control. Um, again, 
it's it's yeah we don't we don't have hard numbers on that mm-hmm. um, but uh, but 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 I would say that if if you're sort of making predictions that would be the prediction to make that we would expect this to be a Democratic year especially here in Minnesota where the Democrats are have you know as mm-hmm. Andy already noted right some very heavy hitters on the top of the top of the statewide ticket um, so we would expect maybe Democrats to do to do fairly well um, mm-hmm. at that level I think that's reasonable yeah okay so uh, the uh, the next question will talk about is what is your prediction for um, the House split after the midterm? So this is the, the U.S. House and the Senate. What are your predictions for what those splits will look like after the election? Uh, if you'd a- so if you'd asked me this um, before uh, the Kavanaugh appointment, I would have said uh, I would have I would have expected an, a huge blue wave, right? Maybe something even approaching um, what what happened in 2010, right? Which was where mm. the Democrats, you know, got uh, picked up. I can't remember the exact numbers, but a, it lot. Was a lot of seats, yeah, <laughs> um, and the Republicans just basically had a bloodbath. Um, and uh, I'm no longer thinking that, right? So with the, with the shifts since the Kavanaugh appointment, um, it's it seems almost certain that the Democrats will pick up seats, right? So that 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 that's for sure. Um, it will probably be just barely enough uh, to actually tip tip things over, right? So maybe we're talking like 25, 26, 27 seats, something like that. So maybe just enough to, to tip over and get and get the majority. Um, I think that's probably uh, where we'll end up. Yeah. I'll, just for just for funsies, I'll 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 take either side of that. I think uh-huh. that re, um, Democratic anger over Kavanaugh's appointment will persist longer than Republican satisfaction, yeah. and I think you'll see a Democratic pickup somewhere in the 30s. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. That very well could be. Yeah, I think I would go. I go that route. In terms of the Senate, I think um, it's likely to look very similar to what we have now. There'll be some. Yeah. I think. I think Heidi Heitkamp's going to lose in North Dakota. Um, I think the Democrats are definitely going to pick up some seats. It's not clear to me which ones yet, but um, so they have to defend a lot, though. They have to defend a lot, right. but um, I think they're they're well positioned in a couple of places. I mean, Nevada looks reasonably good for them. Arizona looks reasonably good for them. I think it'd be surprising if they didn't pick up at least one of those two. Um, but I think it ends up looking pretty close to 5149, give or take yep. a seat, mm-hmm. um, which is yep. what we're at right now. In fact, if you look at 538's prediction model, 50-50 split is the most the most likely yep. of any individual mm-hmm. outcome. Right. Yep. I just checked theirs this morning and it's, they had 50 seats that are either held by Republicans or at least leaning Republican. And then there's a couple of true toss-ups, and the rest are all leaning Democrat. And the true toss-ups, I would say, probably slightly favor the Democrats. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. All right, so if the, this is our next question, if the Democrats take the House, what can we expect in the next two years? <laughs> a, a giant <laughs> sack of nothing. Well, it's um, not, well, it's cer- certainly a sack of nothing in terms of the legislation that gets passed. Actual um, accomplishment. Yes, there, there, there will be no more, and, and this is essentially is what happened to the Democrats too after 2010, right? Essentially, um, they were not, you know, Congress became essentially ineffective, unable to pass right. legislation right. Um, that would then be signed into law. Um, what, what we will see that I think is much more substantial is the House does have subpoena power, um, and so they yeah. will be able to essentially. Uh, subpoena those who are uh, part of the Trump administration, and we can expect to see probably some very um, aggressive investigations mm-hmm. uh, into the ter- into the Trump administration. So I think that's the most significant right. thing. Now, a number of folks. So get used to hearing the phrase "presidential privilege." Uh, yes. Correct. <laughs> so there will be lots right. of there will be lots of contests and assertions over yeah, uh, yeah the the competing powers of the of of. of of the branches. I mean, you think um, about what the Republicans do at Benghazi right after the 2012 right. election, right? I mean, that, yep. that kind of thing with the Democrats doing that to the Republican administration now. Right, yep. yeah. Um, and essentially, I think uh, in many ways, what, 
the, 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 the one thing that's sort of being batted around right now is the question of would the, would the Democrats vote to impeach President Trump? Um, and I, I, you know, I know you guys already talked about impeachment, right? so I don't want to <laughs> get into that, but that seems relatively unlikely um, and uh, the, for a couple of reasons. Number one reason is that uh, basically, strategically, it would be purely a theatrical move, right? So as long as the Senate is controlled um, somewhere, anywhere close to 50-50, there's absolutely no chance of convicting President Trump, barring something really, really... Um, you know, heinous coming out that that his that own party would have to abandon him. Right. right. Yeah, the Republicans sure. would have to abandon him, um, and so it would essentially be a theatrical move, and it doesn't seem to be one that would be particularly beneficial. I think Democrats actually want to run against Trump in 2020 um, because Trump has been relatively un well. He's been historically unpopular um, as a president. He seems like someone that, um, in many ways, you know, the fundamentals indicate he ought to be very, very beatable in 2020. Um, now. Whether that's true or not, that's another question. He, he but has beaten the fundamentals. He has beaten the fundamentals mm -hmm. before, and so he you was know, very, very beatable in twenty. He's very beatable in twenty sixteen. So, um, so um, <laughs> although, although in twenty sixteen, the fundamentals were actually more in his favor um, than uh, than than they will be in twenty twenty. So in twenty sixteen, he had the um, essentially the benefit of running against the incumbent party, which actually usually benefits um, the challenging party yeah. um, significantly. Um, and in fact, Trump won by a slightly less margin than we would have expected a generic Republican to win. Um, right. So, That's true. so I'll, I'll, although yeah. I will push back on that just a little bit in the sense that I think the fundamentals might end up being better for him than we want to say right now. I mean, if the economy keeps going, I think that's yes, the key X absolutely. factor here, right? If the yep. economy two years from now looks like it does right now, the, the president could actually be in a very good spot. We tend to vote our yep. pocketbooks. Um, and the other thing that is going to be an issue, I think, is right now there's a ton of Democrats who are thinking about running. They may, maybe they don't all choose to do so, yeah. but if they do, the, the Democrats could easily end up in a spot like the Republicans ended up in 2016, where there's too many people, the field's really messy, and they get a suboptimal candidate emerging against a you know incumbent president who um, has a good economy. If that's the case, right, people might decide like, you know, yeah, there's a lot of drama with Trump, and yeah, we don't like everything he says and does, but things seem to have gone okay for four years let's just do it again, right? Um, so I wouldn't, at this point, I would not be shocked to see the president win re-election. Okay, we, we have a, a number of questions about 2020, which I, and you've answered most of them, so I'm just gonna, gonna drop this one on you. Um, I'll be a little bit more specific. What do you think the 2020 presidential matchup will be? Who will be the who will be the the, the <laughs> two party representatives that will uh, will be voting on well, there was Donald a, Trump for the there, Republicans? There was, <laughs> there, was yeah, one, maybe there, there was a lot of but that was there were a lot of people who said in 2017 there's no way Donald Trump makes it to 2020. I I and I was sort of patting myself in the back here a little bit. Like, Donald Trump is going to make it through four years of his yeah. presidency, and I still think that's true. Um, barring a heart attack, right? Barring some kind of health issue or something like that, I think it, the, the likelihood that he resigns out of peak or is it, or is removed from office is, is nil. Um, I, go I small, think the Democratic yeah. side is um, uh, very wide open, um, and I don't have a strong sense of who that might be. We're in, just playing predictions now, though. So throw out in, who in, you in think the it absence will be. of. In the absence of, uh, of a strong pick, I'll say it's going to be a septuagenarian race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Okay. Ooh. I'm going to go Elizabeth Warren, um, I partly because I read a fairly convincing article this week um, that suggested that you know she's the one person who's kind of equipped to bring together different wings of the Democratic Party, different things they want. Um, I, I think Biden and Sanders' moment may have passed. I think a lot of the other candidates are so untried. But I, 
I don't know. It is really wide open. So, um, but she has she has a decent base. She has good name recognition in the party. So, yeah, I'll go with her. Right, and I think you know, sort of the the the, the other names, right? So we've heard Biden and Warren, right? The other names that people have thrown out have been people like Sherrod Brown, um, or of course Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, Cory Booker, yeah, Kamala, Kamala Harris. Harris, right? So so these are these are the kinds of people that are out there. I think I think I think the Booker and Harris are a little bit less likely for sure. Um, and uh, you know, uh, and Brown too, for uh, to some degree. But I, I guess I would lean towards Elizabeth Warren. I think she has positioned herself pretty well, um, and she's a very savvy politician. And I think she has she has essentially prepared. So, so if you've watched her in the last couple of months, she has essentially come out very strong in favor uh, and very specifically in favor of capitalism, right? So she's made this an explicit part of her campaign is essentially that she is the advocate. She is the democratic advocate for saving capitalism from itself. Um, so in many ways, uh, you know, you could sort of swap out a lot of her speeches for FDR's speeches, um, where essentially, you know, FDR is saying, I am, the, I am the capitalist who's here to save capitalism from itself. And I think in many ways, she has, um, she, she's obviously already running against Bernie Sanders. Um, and so I think, I think she's probably set herself up in a way that will appeal to the more moderate um, you know, if you if if, if you're if you're some you know the way to sort of think about this is to say who's going to win in Iowa and who's going to win in New Hampshire and who's going to win in South Carolina, right? Those early primary states, and they're going to be uh, folks who probably are going to be a little bit more able to appeal to a populist, um, a little bit more rural Democratic base, and that's less Bernie Sanders, and it seems like that's more what Elizabeth Warren has set herself up for. So. Okay, so speaking of winning, here's our last question. We can do this really quick. This comes from friend of the show Alex Hintz. Who is going to win the World Series, and why will it be the Milwaukee Brewers? Because <laughs> they're awesome. <laughs> I think the answer is Yelich kind of seems magical, so I think yeah. that's probably why it will be that. Is he also um, going to solve our American politics problems? Maybe. Because Once he wins great? the World Series, he might actually bring right, us good. all together. Maybe he will run um, for president as a Democrat. Is he old enough? I don't think no. so, but oh well. I would like, to, um, as, as, as an Ohioan, like Dr. Crum is as well, I would like to see the Indians win and break the curse yeah. of Rocky Colavito. <laughs> that would be actually good. Um, no one knows the curse of Rocky Colavito, but if we can break the curse of Rocky, we can end partisan gerrymandering too. <laughs> um, well, thank you all very much for, for joining us today. Um, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. Those of you who are listening online, you can always email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, we'll be back in your podcast feed with another podcast next week. But on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say Bethel 48, St. John's 36, and go Royals. <laughs> <laughs>